Man, sometimes it feels like the choir preaches the sermon for you. So we can just wrap up and go home, right? We're done here. No. Man, that would have been like a waste of my time this week. But okay. <laughs> um, no, in all seriousness, Pastor Seth preached an incredible sermon last Sunday that drew us into one of the most famous books of the Bible, the book of Job, a book that asks deep questions of God and of this life. And goodness knows in this world where churches, sanctuaries, and synagogues no longer feel safe, we have a lot of big questions. Last week we talked about the workings of our world, which exists in three planes, the physical and material, those earthquakes and illnesses, the moral or legal, where we find crime and punishment, and the spiritual or faith-filled, where we ask, where is God in the midst of pain, and who are we called to be? But the book of Job, like so many stories that we tell ourselves, is an almost trite tale, where any suffering that Job experienced seems to be erased as his good fortune returns and is multiplied after his trials, where his livestock and money seem to pour forth, where his children are replaced with more attractive children, and where God blesses Job for the rest of the days of his life. And he seems to live happily ever after. And it seems to get better. A reading from the book of Job. Job answered God, I'm convinced you can do anything and everything Nothing and no one can upset your plans. You asked, who is this muddying the water, ignorantly confusing the issue, second-guessing my purposes? I admit it, I was the one. I babbled on about things far beyond me, made small talk about wonders way over my head. You told me, listen, let me do the talking. Let me ask the questions. You give the answers. I admit, I once lived by rumors of you. Now I have it all firsthand, from my own eyes and ears. I'm sorry. Forgive me. I'll never do that again. I promise. I'll never again live on the crust of hearsay, crumbs of rumor. After Job had interceded for his friends, God restored his fortune and then doubled it. All his brothers and sisters and friends came to his house and celebrated. They told him how sorry they were and consoled him for all the trouble God had brought him. Each of them brought generous housewarming gifts. God blessed Job's later life even more than his earlier life. He ended up with 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 teams of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. He named the first daughter Dove, the second Cinnamon, and the third Dark Eyes. There was not a woman in that country as beautiful as Job's daughters. 
their father treated them as equals with their brothers, providing the same inheritance. Job lived on another 140 years, living to see his children and grandchildren, four generations of them. Then he died, an old man, a full life. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Would you please pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorified in your sight, for you, O God, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When I was a little girl, my mother, in all of her feminist glory, did not want me to grow up with false ideals about body image or perfection or societal expectation for me and my life. And this resulted in what I came to term Barbie gate. <laughs> See, my mom refused to buy me the classic children's toy with feet permanently contorted that, uh, for shoes that seemed too dangerously high, a waist, hip, bust proportion that would have left Barbie in need of a wheelchair to get around if her dimensions had exi existed in any physical human way. Now, in my mother's justice, I could buy my own Barbies if I saved my allowance, and I could keep Barbies that were gifted to me, though somehow Santa always seemed to lose those requests in the mail. Instead, my mother bought me a real Barbie. She had flat feet and a little bit of tummy fat and thighs and brown hair not too dissimilar from my own. And I hated this doll. <clears throat> Which maybe says, honestly, something about me. But she lived at the bottom of my toy box, often ignored and forgotten. Then moving, as little ones do, from infatuation to infatuation, I became engrossed with life under the sea and longed to be part of that world with Ariel and sidekick Flipper and that crusty crustacean Sebastian. But my mother also insisted that I should know the truth about classic literature. And so while my friend Sarah Beth had a VHS where Ariel and Eric lived happily ever after, ending with the married couple literally sailing off into the sunset, I sobbed as the sea witch gives Ariel an ultimatum. Since Prince Eric does not end up loving Ariel but another, Ariel must either cut out his heart and throw it into the sea or be turned into sea foam. And as the sun rises and Ariel casts the dagger into the deep, unable to kill her love, the princess is no more and forever turned into sea foam. What a cheery tale for children everywhere. <laughs> Thank you, Hans Christian Andersen, but I will personally stick with the Disney one. We long for the fake. 
We want the happily ever afters, the it'll be okays, and the it gets betters. And it feels like that's what we're getting here at the end of Job, the happily ever after. Job's suffering begetting his salvation. And this idea meets our modern ideology. If we tell ourselves, if only I think positively enough, if I pray enough or if I have enough faith, then I will be rewarded with abundance that I cannot even imagine and I will be immune from the suffering of this world. In her book, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved, Duke Divinity School professor Kate Bowler writes about her academic study of this prosperity gospel, the belief that the righteous will be rewarded while the wicked will suffer. She writes, I did discover that the prosperity gospel encourages people, especially its leaders, to buy private jets and million-dollar homes as evidence of God's love. I just want to interject here that Seth and I are obviously not ministers of the prosperity gospel. (laughs) She writes, but I also saw a desire for escape. Believers wanted to escape from poverty and failing health and the feeling that their lives were nothing more than leaky buckets. People wanted salvation from bleak medical diagnoses. They wanted to see God rescue their misfiring marriages. Some people wanted Bentleys, but more wanted relief from the wounds of their past and the pain of their present. They wanted talismans to ward off the things that go bump in the night. They wanted a modicum of power over the things that have ripped their lives apart. We crave the certainty of the story. The predictable pattern of Joseph Campbell's hero's arc where we go through trials and tribulations but return victorious, reborn, and transformed. There is something comforting in controlling our stories and lives to this narrative. Like some great formula, if only we can keep the score and know where we stand. We, we want to tell our stories. We want to tell a story, any story, so that we can get some certainty back. And we sometimes believe these lies that end up breaking our hearts. For Kate... This modicum of power and control, this formula, this story became all too real when she was diagnosed with terminal cancer. Throughout the book, she wrestles with what it means as a mom to leave her two-year-old son and her high school sweetheart husband. She writes of the years where she failed to love what was present and instead loved what was possible in her life, striving for the next best thing instead of realizing that the best things maybe surrounded her. Last week, Pastor Seth preached on the preceding passage from Job, where God asks Job, where were you when I created the heavens and the earth, giving life to every living thing? This refrain is one used hauntingly in the 2011 movie Tree of Life. But it is a question that God not only asks of Job, 
It is a question that we, time again, find ourselves crying out to God. Where were you? As families at the Tree of Life Synagogue gathered to celebrate life born, life was cut short. Where were you? And this week, we are left with the empty and the hollow. I was surprised last week when Pastor Seth mentioned Elie Wiesel and others who've written on Job that he did not mention one of my husband's favorites, the Coen Brothers film, A Serious Man. A contemporary portrait of Job, or in this case, Larry, who has met with the trials of this life. Larry has a wife who no longer loves him and who wants to leave him. Larry has a job as a physics professor that is in jeopardy after an unfair complaint by a student. And he has a constant health concern that leaves him lancing the boil on the back of his neck nightly. And in his attempt to find meaning, comfort, and guidance, Larry attempts to gather wisdom from three different rabbis. The first rabbi, a young man from fresh out of rabbinical school, points out his office window to a parking lot. And he tells trite answers, claiming God is in all things, from the banality of this parking lot to Larry's life. And all we have to do is find God, the divine in the driveway. Not comforted by this, Larry seeks another option. The second rabbi that he goes to tells Larry a story of God in the magical and in the miraculous, of God leaving a message, letting a man know that he is not alone. But still, Larry is not comforted. For God's never given him some sort of divine message. There's been no burning bush or angels to wrestle with or voices from on high speaking to him. And so he goes to a third rabbi, an old, distinguished rabbi who is just not there. The secretary tells Larry to come back. He's busy. The overall feeling that this response gives is not just reflective of that rabbi, though, but of God, God's self. Come back, I'm busy. This old distinguished rabbi is the one helping Larry's son along the process to his bar mitzvah. And in class one day, Danny, Larry's son gets in trouble, listening to a headset of music when he should be studying scripture. The headset is confiscated, and he expects never to see it again. Now, in some Jewish traditions, right around the time of your bar mitzvah, young men and women will go to the rabbi to receive a piece of wisdom that they will hold with them and treasure for their lives. As Danny walks into the rabbi's office, he sees laid out on the desk his radio. And as he steps forward... The rabbi, an archetype of Jewish wisdom with a long beard and tiny circular glasses perched on the tip of his nose, a back hunched from years of bending over and reading scripture, the rabbi begins to speak in a dry voice. 
when the truth is found to be lies and all the joy within you dies. Tears are running, they are all running down your dress and your friends, baby, they treat you like a guest. Don't you want somebody to love? Don't you need somebody to love? Won't you find somebody to love? You better find somebody to love. The rabbi's wisdom, the wisdom of Job and the Jefferson Airplane, (laughs) is that the heartache of life will come, but we can find somebody to love. And we need somebody to love. This is the story of the gospel, after all, where God enters into the brokenness of humanity for a short time. But in that time, love was unbound, transformed, and ignited the world. As Jesus taught us to love without bounds or restrictions, with disregard for labels and conventions, to love in a way which honors our shared humanity. Father Robert Barron says it like this. If God is love, the best way to communicate with God and participate in that which is God is to do just that, to find somebody to love. After meeting with doctors, clinical trials, tests, and heaps of hope, Kate, our author and Duke Divinity School professor, was told that she would die within the year. And drawing those that she loved close around her, she writes about this conversation with her friend Frank. I asked him about heaven. He knew what I was asking because he always knows. Will I be connected? Will I miss everything? Will I see my son sprout, out, sprout up and learn the rules of Canadian football? Can I see him graduate and be launched into the world? How many times can I sit by his bedside and watch him clasp his hands and squeeze his eyes tight and thank God for tractors and sticks to throw into the stream by our house? These are the plans that I've made. These are the hopes that are being ground into dust. And then one day, out of the blue, I remember what Frank said next. Don't skip to the end, he said gently. Don't skip to the end. Plans are made, plans come apart. New delights or tragedies pop up in their place, and nothing human or divine will map out this life, this life that has been more painful than we could ever imagine and more beautiful than we could ever imagine. So let us not skip to the end, searching for some happily ever after. Let us hold on to the wisdom of the Jefferson Airplane and the gospel and its greatest commandment. May we find somebody to love and realize that the real, raw, broken is also beautiful and true and honest and that it is better than any happily ever after. Amen.